This is Pastor Mike here. The beginning of the scripture reading was cut off this Sunday, so we will go ahead and add it in here. Reading from John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. After dark one evening, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus, how could an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Gospel of John, written... Quote, so that by believing in Him, in Jesus, you will have life by the power of His name. This is in John twenty thirty one. John 21, very structured chapters. And John focuses on the signs and wonders that Jesus does, seven miracles that uh, show that Jesus is the Son of God, is God incarnated in the flesh. And also he includes a number of life-changing encounters of which we will lift out four. The first of which is Nicodemus. This is a part of our journey up toward Palm Sunday. These are the four individuals that the lectionary lifts out we will be dealing with. Next week will be the woman at the well, but this week, for this encounter with Jesus, we have the Pharisee at midnight. Now, setting the stage for this, in the verses immediately preceding the ones that we read, 
it says this, because of the miraculous signs, again, John is presenting signs and wonders to uh, show us Jesus's authority. Of all the, because of all the miraculous signs and wonders Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. So at the end of that, he knew what was in each person's heart. Then you have in the middle of night, in the middle of the darkness, comes this Pharisee to talk to Jesus. Now, just to give a little background, of course, we think of Nicodemus as being a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the sort of the populist religious leaders of the day. Um, Let's see how to put this. Let me just leave it on them. The Pharisees were populist religious leaders. They gained their authority by the clarity of their teaching on the law and on the prophets. Now, this is opposed to the Sadducees. And every time I say that now, after listening to a person talk about it, I'm going to hear they were sad, you see? So for you ADD people, that's a way to remember it. And the reason they were sad is even though they were the cultural elite, even though they controlled the temple and could trace their lineages back to the uh, old priestly caste and had authority through their genealogies, they only followed the first five books of the Old Testament. They followed the law of... Have you ever heard of a red-letter Christian? You know what that is? Someone who says, well, I love all the Bible, but those red letters are what's special to me. Now, if I stepped on your toes, I'm sorry. I thought I thought I heard a crunch somewhere. The Sadducees were sort of the red-letter Israelites, and they said, you know, all of these prophets and all, I'm sure they were good people, but they were not Moses. And who we like is Moses. He gave us the laws. He gave us, we totaled them up to 613 of them. Those are what we follow in the temple. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe that the prophets spoke with the same authority as Moses. And there was a big difference. Now, here's the thing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not like one another. You could think of them as the Republicans and the Democrats. I'm not going to parse who was who. You could also think of them as the populist leaders and the elite leaders. But they agreed on a few things. One of them, they were tired of all of these so-called messiahs who just seemed to be coming up and stirring up trouble. They hated Rome, but they hated the people that threatened their own personal power more. In other words, politicians. <laughs> now... Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but not only was he Nicodemus the Pharisee, when it says in the New Living Translation, Jesus saying, you a respected leader or Jewish teacher, it obscures something that is shown in the other translations. There's the possibility, very strong possibility, that should have been translated, you, the teacher of Israel, know not these things. You, the teacher of the Jews, do not know these things. And have you ever heard someone called the people's pastor? 
it might have very much been that same kind of thing. In other words, Nicodemus could have been the person who was known for being the most respected teacher in that area, the person who people would come to to ask, the person who maybe you could think of him as early Jewish Billy Graham. There's a good possibility that was this guy. Not only, though, was he Nicodemus the Pharisee, he was Nicodemus the Powerful. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Think of that as the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. They didn't need to go through confirmation hearings, at least not like we have. But it was the highest standing members of their society, plus the highest standing members of the religious caste. And this was a part of the group Nicodemus was. Now... Nicodemus was also wealthy. How do we know this? Remember, he brought spices for Jesus' burial. It turns out the amount of spices, excuse me, can't talk, the amount of spices that he brought were fit for a king. Have you ever paid a year's wages to just get burial items for a good friend? I haven't either. But the amount of money he spent would have been equivalent to a year's wages as I understand it. In other words, this was a successful individual. This was a man with a history of accomplishment. Do you know people with a history of accomplishment? And you know that, well, there's someone who can get things done. This was the kind of person visiting Jesus at night... uh, I have to apologize for this. Some of you will know why it's grown worthy, but uh, in doing research for this, I must have heard three or four preachers each say, oh, by the way, this was Nick at night. And the whole congregation would groan. Some of you are like, no. But what I do like about that is, part of me, I'm going to call him Nick because Nicodemus for the next, you know, 15 minutes is not going to be really fun. So Nick was there at night. So was he Nicodemus the covert or the secretive? Why was he coming to Jesus at night? Was it to not be seen by the others of his social class? You know that happens. It's like, well, what are my friends going to think? Well, I'll just... Come at a certain, was it because he knew that during the daytime Jesus was being mobbed by people who were wanting him to teach them, to heal them, to feed them? Maybe. Could it have been that he did not want the respected teacher of Israel, member of the Sanhedrin, wealthy individual, to be seen by the public? coming to Jesus instead of Jesus coming to him? We really don't know, but I do think it's interesting that he starts off not with an I, but with a we. He could have said, Jesus, I know that you must be from God. But no, he started with that, well, we know. Have you noticed that we do that when we're trying to distance ourselves just a little? Or we're using, and this might have been the case, an authority that has been conferred upon us like the magisterial we. I don't know if I'll get back to it, but notice that Jesus kind of chides him a little by saying, we say of what we, we speak of what we have seen and understand and know, but if you do not believe what I say when I speak of 
earthly things. How will you believe when I speak of heavenly things? He takes it from the we down to the I and makes it personal. But there is something we do know. Nicodemus was literally in the dark. And this is in the gospel that starts out by saying light had come into the world, but the darkness basically didn't like it. Wanted to get rid of it, eventually put it to death, but it shone forth anyway. So Nicodemus was definitely unprepared for this encounter with Jesus. I'm sure he thought he was prepared. He had the speech all worked out. Jesus, we know that you are sent from God. You you kind of have the feeling it's rehearsed. And Jesus totally derails the prepared speech. Instead of saying, well, I thank you. I'm glad that you recognize that I am from God. Maybe we need to talk about our different positions on things and come to an understanding and agreement. Instead, he looks at Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. If you want to even see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, please, I know we're very familiar with that language, especially in the South. But as far as I know, this is the only place where Jesus himself is recorded as having said specifically, born again. And there's a reason that John would put Part of me put this conversation with Nicodemus and make sure that that was the first personal encounter he really related as someone outside of Jesus' family. You must be born again. And by the way, that Greek word for born again can also mean, just completely equivalently, could also mean born from above. So Nicodemus could have said, well, how is it that I can be born from above? When I first read this, I kind of thought Nick was dumb. How can a man go back into his mother's womb as an old man? How could I do that? Well, I kind of think he was maybe retreating to Humor. Have you noticed that if I'm a little uncomfortable, I try to be funny? Have you ever noticed that? If I get a little nervous, I'll become what my mother calls facetious. Overly amusing. Well, I think that maybe Nicodemus was retreating into that and he took, well, you must, well, how can I do this, Jesus? This makes no sense. But you notice that in the midst of that, there is a definite question, how do I go about this? I mean, there's a bit of the humor, it's buried, he's entered into the figure of speech with Jesus. But remember, this is a man who is very used to accomplishment. This is someone who is an expert on the 613 laws that have been given from Moses. This is someone who would say, yes, I have dedicated my life to the love of learning about God, and I have structured my life so that I am following his laws. If there is some way that I need to be born again or born from above, if you tell me how to do that, Jesus, I will put that on my list and I'll get right on it. But the thing is, goal-oriented Nick misses the point. Um, Question. During a normal birth, what individual is there that 
really can contribute nothing to that birth, to that delivery. I was waiting for someone to say the dad, and I was going to say no. But you had it right. The baby. The one who is... What did you contribute to your birth? Nothing. It is something that was done on your behalf, and you are very thankful that the first hands that touched you were concerned with being loving and caring for you and delivering you. Jesus used, you must be born again to a person who was very how do I goal oriented and the implication that sails right over Nick's head is, okay, this is a situation where if you really think about what happens there, the baby, you, is completely helpless. You're depending on someone else. So Nick asks this, well, how, how can this be? And Jesus answers, no one, and I think it was phrased more like this. We've made it an issue about baptism in some of the Christian conversations over the years. But if you think of it like this, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. It's that last little bit that would make the difference. And there is another word play going on here. John loves recording the word plays for us. The word for spirit and the word for wind in Greek is the same. It's pneuma. It's from which we get the word pneumonia or pneumatic tire. It means air. It could mean breath. It would all mean the same thing. And he's making this point to Nicodemus, probably pointing out as the wind was rustling through the trees, maybe it was a dark and stormy night. The wind goes where it wants to. You are not in charge of the wind. It's not something that you can put on your list. <clears throat> and the Spirit is like the wind. You are not in charge of God in this. You are the one who receives as a helpless infant. And Nicodemus finally asks from a position of vulnerability instead of a position of authority and checking it off of his list of things to do, how can this possibly be? So he finally moves from how do I do it just to how. How does this take, how does this work? How can this be, Lord Jesus? Now, see, the problem Nick had, and John is facing it head on here by having this be this first encounter with Jesus. Throughout all the Gospels, you seem to have this common difficulty with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Sanhedrin. And it all can be summarized in Jesus' statement to, I have come to, you know, the, the well do not need healing, I've come to heal the sick. And the implied statement over and over and over in the Gospels is, hey, Pharisees, you're sick and you don't realize it. That's the problem. You think you're well. But instead, you're sick and you're making other people sick too. It's a bad thing to say whenever we have a, a good number of people out with viruses today, isn't it? <laughs> but how much more frustrating... Would that be for Jesus to see those who thought they were doing what God wanted them to do and instead they were spreading a spiritual sickness onto others?
a message of helplessness before God given to a person and to a people who were used to being very spiritually self-sufficient in their own mind, that would have been either terribly frightening or very offensive. What do you mean I'm helpless in this? I haven't been helpless. In, in fact, I have spent my life dedicated to this to know that I am not like, for instance, that publican over there praying. Or that person who was called in adultery. Or this person over here who was born blind because of his or his parents' sins. I have made sure that I am not one of those. I am on the right side of God. And how can you tell me that I am helpless? I have achieved this. And that is why it was so hard for some of these people to understand Jesus' message. Because he was supposed to come as Messiah and pat them on the back. Instead, he said, you know, you have just as far to go as the people you continually look down your nose upon. You have not yet even realized you're sick. Next week when we encounter the woman at the well, you'll notice he didn't say you must be born again. Her problem was not pride. Her problem was emptiness. And he said, I will fill you with living water. But for Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must submit to help this helplessness in the face of God. You must realize that before him, you are this helpless infant. And yes, it takes courage to see ourselves as that. But how much more courage did it take for Christ to himself enter this world as a helpless infant. We think, well, He is our example. He is the one that we are to follow. And the first act of courage He exhibited was making Himself helpless on behalf of all of us. So why should it surprise us the first step in the gospel is realizing our own complete and utter need for God. Now, many of the Pharisees could not really get their heads around this. Thankfully, Nick was an honest seeker. So when he asked Jesus how, Jesus replied with something that is very interesting for us and We as newborns in Christ in the manger. Let me just go on. Jesus replied with some thing that is easy to miss. It is this very quickly done with story in Numbers 21. And I believe we have time. I will read it if that is all right. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now, this is when they were wandering in the wilderness. They had gone through the Red Sea. They had escaped from Egypt, but they wandered 40 years in the wilderness on a trip that should have taken them about two weeks. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness, they complained. Now, they were slaves in Egypt and they're like, why did you free us? Why have you brought us out here to die? There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink. And we hate 
this horrible manna. We hate the food that God is providing. Seems very ungrateful. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. By the way, have you ever noticed that talk like that is very poisonous and can fill an entire group with venom? Be careful, church. That that happens. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord. You think? We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snake. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten and live will live if they simply look upon it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, this material that they use as a part of religious worship, bronze was significant for that, and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could simply look at that bronze snake and be healed. And Jesus said, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so I will be lifted up and draw all people unto myself. Now here's the thing. When I was young in the faith, I was like, why is that snake an image of Christ when the snake in Genesis 3 was the devil? How do I figure that out? And it took a little while, but at least for myself, I think I got it. And maybe this will be your understanding as well. That when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, He was drawing the sin of the world onto Himself. The snake lifted up in the wilderness, this symbol of the poison that the people was speaking was lifted up, they looked upon it, and in a way that snake was drawing the poison from them. Jesus on the cross, the sins of the world placed upon Him in that manner is exactly parallel to that serpent in the wilderness. But the thing is, that wasn't the significant part of the story. The significant part was the people at the base looking up, (coughs) pardon me, at the serpent. They didn't have a list. This in the time where there were all the laws being given, this was the one time where it was all you can do is choose to look upon this. Trust that this will bring you healing and you will live. And by the way, the Scripture doesn't say all the snakes disappeared. It did say though that God's healing was lifted up and available to the wounded by a simple act of faith. Now looking at the rest of the gospel, it seems that Nicodemus did move from darkness into light. And here's the thing, our faith journeys... In other words, our stories of how God has called us and worked in us and through us. Each of us has a different story, but there are certain things that we have in common. And one of them has to be this. At some point, we each realize that we are indeed helpless to be good enough or righteous enough or talented enough or whatever enough to earn our way 
to God's love and God's acceptance. Aren't you glad, therefore, that it is freely given on the basis of trust? Now, it's not that we don't have a work that God has for us to do. It's not that. It's not, okay, trust Him and then just do whatever you want to. It's not that. But even those things that God asks us to do that open the kingdom up for others, all of our service, all of our witness, the time that we have spent feeding the hungry, visiting the sick or in prison, all of these very practical things within them is that implicit message that we too, as are these before us, utterly dependent upon God for that baby step. Of faith. So, it comes to this to a people that, in this country anyway, many people are very, very self sufficient. And sometimes it's the people who are the most giving who are the most, yeah, but I don't want to bother anybody else, I'll just handle it myself. <laughs> It comes down to this. Are we willing to be vulnerable before God? Are we willing to stand in that place of helplessness and trust Him with us, with our future? God, through Christ, is the one who is lifted up to draw the poison in us out of us. To draw our sins, who bore our sins, who died our death, that we might have eternal life in Him. And before all, before all of the things that are good that we are called to do, there has to be that first step of saying, God, before you, I have nothing really to commend myself. I just simply trust in Jesus. Very simple message when you get down to it. It doesn't make sense to a world based on accomplishment doesn't make sense in a world based on authority given by connection. It doesn't really make sense of this world system, but it does say this. When it comes down to it, remember that you are loved so much that God would spread His arms and die. Are you thankful for the love and the mercy of God? Are you thankful that we can trust Him with our helplessness? Because when we are vulnerable, He is the one who delivers us. Dear Lord, let it be. Amen. Amen.